This is a pot filter. Pot filter. I think yeah. said pot filter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is our pot filter. Yeah. Yeah. Not a licking filter. <laughs> the licks go through. <laughs> Uh, that would be funny. Can, can you hear me? <laughs> 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 can, can you hear me? Lick it? So that, I'm, I'm and that is our intro. Yeah. <laughs> <That's laughs> <whole time. laughs> can you hear me? Lick it? <laughs> 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 uh, <great. laughs> Silence. Done. Silence. significant. My name is Andrew Smith and I'm here with Andrew Monroe. Hello. Twyla Wingrove. Hey yo. And Chris, Chris Holden. Yo. All right so today, on today's episode we're going to be talking about uh, collaborations, um, just various issues both good and bad that have happened with that. But before we get into that um, we're kind of at the end of our semester and on Twitter there was a whole bunch of discussion about rounding grades. So if somebody has like an 89.5 percent in your class what grade is that? Do you round up to 90 or is that a B plus? Is it an 89.51 or an 89.5? 0.50. Yes. Yes, you round up? <laughs> yes, I round up. Okay. Yeah, actually, yeah. my, my answer to the, the <laughs> no. question didn't actually turn on that. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, that was, I was confused. Yeah. I do not round up. Yeah. Rounding is for losers. I, I mean, I, I agree that rounding is for losers, yeah. and I also round up. Nice. Why don't you round up? Because they didn't earn a 90. Like, if you want an A minus, earn the freaking 90 and stop whining to me about your 89.5. I make it very clear in the syllabus. I use two decimals in the syllabus. So I say, in order to get an A minus, you have to have a 90.00. What if they have an 89.995? Then I round up to 90.0. Okay. So, 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 so you have to round. You have to you round have at to some round. point. All, yeah. all of these numbers are infinite. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to call <laughs> a cutting point at some yeah. point. But um, but yeah, I I do two decimals. I feel like mm-hmm. I want precision. I want them to earn very close to at least a 90 if they want an A minus. Mm-hmm. And so I will only round up if it's 89.995. I, so I was so I round. I was um, under the impression that most people do round, but then on Twitter, like there was just a lot of discussions about you know don't round, don't round, don't round, and whatnot. But I just I, I don't know. Well, one, it's just not something I feel passionate about. But also I because like you were saying, you have to round at some point. It just depends on how many decimals are we talking about right. because. You know, some of these things, you know, I had 37 questions on a test. There's going to be weird, you know, ranges. So you have to round. So it's just you round to the nearest whole number or one decimal point, two decimal points, and so on. And I don't know, my thing is, like, all of the thresholds are arbitrary anyway. So whether you pick 89.5 or 89.95 or 995, it's all arbitrary. So it just seems like, I don't know, why, why not just round up and that just seems... Yeah, but the argument that it's all arbitrary applies mm-hmm. to almost anything in our yeah. lives. And so yeah. I just never find that compelling because, yeah. like, the whole point of college, at least in, in most academic institutions, we're assigning grades. Mm-hmm. And we decided as a culture that 90% is an A minus mm-hmm. and 93 is an A. And those are arbitrary. Mm-hmm. But now that we've committed to them, then why dick around with the cutoff? So I get fewer emails. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I mean, I, I, mean so I, I say that, and like that certainly is part of my rationale that I don't want people like, oh, but I have you know an eighty nine point seven two. Like, isn't that an A minus? I'm like, oh, just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, but but like the larger, the, like the that's part of my reasoning. The other part is that when I think about how, so my my classes usually have some mix of papers and exams and, and uh, other types of assignments that I will grant that like my grading of a paper uh, is not 100% precise. Um, I might have, I, I try to make my exams as sort of clean as possible, uh, but it's possible that, you know, it, exams are also not a perfect measure. And so when I think about rounding, I think about it in the context of my measures are probably not perfectly precise and so a little bit of rounding is is fine to sort of account for that that lack of precision in the measures that I use to assess students learning in my class. Yeah and that, I mean, that's one of the things I thought about is that I mean, you were saying you like to have the precise score but obviously there's error in the, the measurement that we have so you know as I argued in other contexts it's like a, a false precision. So yes we can you know have those numbers there but it's not all that much more meaningful. Um, yeah. And, you know, so like we have a 100 point scale because we round to the nearest uh, um, whole number. But then you have a 10,000 point scale, I guess, because you have two decimal places. I don't know that, you know, you're going to get much more like, predictive validity out of your 10,000 point scale as we are out of the 100 point scale. And maybe we could probably have a 10 point scale and be almost as, as precise, depending on the class. Some classes, if they're, yeah, I mean, if it's all like multiple choice questions and whatnot, then, then of course that's, there's not subjectivity in those. But yeah, when you have exams and, or I mean, when you have uh, papers and whatnot, there's, there's got to be times where you're on like like you know a border of like I don't know should they get a you know six or a seven in this section and my glass one or two of wine yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah. so I don't know. and I do find that argument more persuasive um, but I build in other ways to account for my measurement mm-hmm. error so for example I I round up everyone's grade by one percent so long as they attend it regularly and mm-hmm. I define that by a number of absences. And so if they attend regularly, they're essentially getting rounded up. Yeah, right. And so they still have to earn that. Yeah. And I guess that's my thing is that I want them to be aware of that they're earning the points to get to 90 and not expecting me to modify the grade that they earned. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I get that. I mean, and also just, you know, it's always frustrating, even if you add those things in, or even if we have the rounding, there are going to then be people who's like, oh, well, you round up from 89.5? Well, I got an 89.4. Can you bump that up to an 89.5, which would then get rounded up to a 90? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, so that's the stuff that I can say no. Like, clearly, no, that's just getting ridiculous. But, um, you know, it's it's hard because, then, you know, once you change the threshold, then, of course, they want just a little bit more, so... Yeah, I think the important thing is, I mean, whether or not you round, but you have whatever your threshold is that you set that as a as a hard threshold, yeah, yeah. and you don't deviate from that. Uh, I think that's more important than the debate around rounding for yeah. me, at least. Yeah, yeah, that's what I keep going back to. Is like, sure, I'll round to eighty nine point five, but that's always my threshold. So yeah, yeah. there's there's not much variance around that. Yeah. Okay, eighty nine point four eight, and like you're screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I will say, um, in fairness to students, though, they typically do, at least in my experience, have been very receptive to instances where like, they may ask, to, like, hey, can you bump up my score? And I, of course, say no. But then I always follow that up with, like, you know, I can't treat different people differently, mm-hmm. and I have to be consistent across all of yeah. the, the different students. And they do kind of understand that appeal that, you know, like, okay, yeah, well, 
That's right. It would be unfair. And so, so they do seem to understand that. See, I think that we should impose costs for, on students for, for those emails. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Because, like, so if you take the student's perspective, it is a rational decision mm-hmm. to send that email because it costs you nothing at yeah. this point. I mean, it costs you major prestige. Okay. It, it costs you, the, like, the 30 seconds it takes to, like, type it yeah. out on your iPhone. Um, but, like, it costs you nothing, really, to send that email. And... On the off shot that you uh, actually like, get an increase in grade, mm-hmm. then like that's a desirable outcome. So the downside, there's no downside. Mm-hmm. Um, the upside is a big one. And so if I'm a student, it is rational for me to always email and say like, can I have the higher grade? Yeah. And so what we should do as professors, I don't, I'm not actually advocating yes. for this, but this is like my my decision making optimization right. protocol. Uh, we should impose costs on students. Like you can make that bet. And if you convince me that I should like raise your grade, then like no harm no foul. But like in college football, mm-hmm. like if you uh, complain about a, if you challenge a particular yeah. call and you yeah. lose, you lose a timeout. In this case, like you actually lose uh, a like I don't know a point, a letter yeah. grade. I don't, oh, not a letter grade, but like you go from like a B plus to a B, mm-hmm. something like that. But it's, so the other so, so you require them to make a bet. We could have a penalty. The other thing, which would not require a penalty, is just be consistent, and so the likelihood of success is zero. So even if... But they don't know that that... The no, but that's what I'm saying. But, but if, if that became the norm, yeah. that like they, they were never successful, then it would never be rewarded, then they would never do it again, and the cost-benefit analysis wouldn't work out in their favor if the likelihood of success was zero. But that requires all professors yes. to do it together. I don't think that's going to be the case. So, yeah. so I round is, is the answer. Okay, all right. And Twilight doesn't. So I don't know, yeah. Big, Big thumbs, thumbs down, down from Twilight. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, should we get to our um, kind of main topic here? So we're going to talk about um, uh, collaborations and just kind of issues surrounding that. And so we have a lot to to cover, I think. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to ask was just whether you guys, well, I mean, first off, like, do you collaborate with people um, within the departments, outside of the department, but in the university, outside of the university? So do you, who do you collaborate with? Um, but then also just getting to like, you know, when you started here, even now, do you feel pressure to collaborate with certain people like within the department, with outside the department or whatnot? I don't know if I feel pressure, but I've collaborated at all levels that you mentioned and okay. I'm still collaborating at all levels that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you and I are working on a paper together. Mm-hmm. Also working on a project with someone who's in a different department mm-hmm. at this university and their friend and colleague who's at another university. So it's kind of like this multi-level collaboration. Um, it just kind of happened naturally. Um, but I've enjoyed it and I've liked it. It's been good. Um, I, can, I would continue doing it. Um, but yeah, I always try and find the natural collaborations as opposed to like, this will be ideal because it signals that I'm being collegial or something like that. So Yeah, because I definitely got the, well, I was going to say implicit but it's actually explicit um the instruction of like hey you should probably collaborate with people yeah uh, certainly within the university and it's kind of suggested maybe within the department that you know you, hey you want to show that you're you know you're a good person you can get along with all the rest of these other folks and so hey having a you know project that you collaborate on with somebody then you can you know show that that you you're working with other people so i definitely had that pressure um i mean i don't think it was much i didn't feel like uncomfortable about it but it was definitely uh you know, mentioned to me that that would be a good idea, which I ended up doing. So, turned out well, though. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think I had the same experience that 
I got the general advice that it is it is good as a signal of, of collegiality that you're not a giant misanthrope, uh, that you should collaborate with the people in your department, uh, where, as Chris said, like, those collaborations are, are natural. Um, but as far as like, feeling pressure, I, I feel like it was a, yeah, this is a good idea. And like doing so is something that is broadly desirable. But you know, if, if you don't, if like there's nothing natural that comes together, like that's fine too. Um, so I felt like it was a very soft pressure, if I mm-hmm. even call it pressure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I work with Twyla. Uh, we, we have uh, some projects together. Like Chris and I are starting uh, the, the project, uh, a project together. You and I have a, uh, we have some data that I don't think we've looked at about, mm-hmm. uh, but, but we, have, we have data. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so at some point we should probably look at that. Probably. Yeah. So what about collaborating with your with people at the institution where you got your graduate degrees. How do you guys feel about that? I, do you mean your advisor, like your former advisor? Either your former yeah. advisor or other people you were you had relationships with there. I So I still do it. I still collaborate actually with both my um, PhD advisor and my um, master's advisor. Um, so I um, collaborate with both of them. But it was like, I don't want to say like a con. It was, it, it was, it was something I had to think about. And it was definitely something that I was concerned that some people would have a kind of negative view of, of like, oh, well, he's still, you know, riding this person's, you know, coattails and whatnot. So obviously he doesn't have any of his own ideas. And so I definitely thought about it. I still made the choice to collaborate because it's enjoyable and it's just a natural thing to do. Um, But I was concerned that people would have a negative view of it. Yeah. I mean, I got the explicit advice from a lot of colleagues, not, not here. Um, but like certainly, um, as I was graduating from my PhD and definitely when I was in my postdoc, I'm like, yeah, you know, this is great. But as soon as you leave, like you can never work with this person again. Like Mm -hmm. you have to cut the cord. Um, and so one thing that I, I really like at a comprehensive and all of you can correct me if you feel like this feeling is wrong, uh, is that I don't feel like the general stigma of working with, um, former advisors or former colleagues really exists here and, and if it does, like certainly not to the degree. I think this is like a really strong norm in our our ones, or at least my sense from the advice that I got was that it's a very strong norm that you totally cut contact off from your former advisor at, at minimum. Which I've always thought was a very strange thing. Like you've worked with this person for a long time, you have a good working relationship, you clearly think and are interested, uh, think about and are interested in similar things. And like now you have to introduce like this huge level of inefficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but here at a comprehensive, I don't feel like that, uh, that type of norm is in place. And I, I think that's more adaptive. I, I would say like in terms of my work breakdown, I don't currently have any projects going with my former advisor. I have a couple of projects going with, with people who were, at uh, the institution where I had my postdoc, uh, but not my advisor at, 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 uh, where I was a postdoc. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it's. I think you should collaborate wherever collaborations are natural and sort of like damn the torpedoes with regards to like whether or not those collaborations are with people that you're quote unquote not supposed to collaborate with. Yeah, I mean that's obviously what I 
you know, the conclusion that I drew, but I was worried. And, but I would, I would, uh, you know, agree with what you were saying that I don't think here there were any negative, or at least nothing that I heard that people actually had any negative uh, yeah, views no. uh, of the fact that I was still collaborating or still am collaborating with my um, advisor. Um, but, but I, it, it was something that I had thought about because like you were saying, I think coming from, um, you know, if you're at a different institution, maybe people would kind of have a more negative view that you need to show your independence and so on. But yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, it's like, well, then my projects are better because of the collaboration. So that seems weird that I would intentionally, you know, make the project worse just to um, kind of appease, I don't know, a kind of outdated. But I guess that would be like that argument like grants the, uh, grants the point that people are saying like you should cut the cord yeah. uh, because it's saying like, well, I can do sort of. Uh, this, oh yeah, that, that's perfect for a podcast as I gesture and you can see it. I can do like an 80% job by myself, but if I had my old advisor, I could, could do like a 95% job. Like that's sort of granting to some extent the argument mm-hmm. that people are making about wanting to demonstrate like, what you can do on your own. Which I mean, I would agree with, but I would say, isn't that the point of any collaboration? That it makes it better? Like don't collaborate with people if it's going to make the overall project worse. Like only collaborate if it's going to make it better, right? So... That seems like that would be the case, whether you're collaborating with your advisor or with any other person. Like, I'm not going to collaborate with Chris if it's going to make the project worse. I don't know. That just doesn't seem like specific to your advisor. No, no, I agree. I don't think that's actually specific to your advisor. I think that's just the that's the counter that someone yeah. would raise and say, aha, like, we yeah. are totally right. Like, you should have cut the cord because yeah. now we know that, like, 15% of your success is, like, totally due to your advisor. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is too meta, but one take that I have on this is that I, I dislike papers, like multiple papers from maybe the same author that is like a, a linear study or a trajectory of studies that has like five or six different people that rotate in and out, right? Because then when you're doing like your lit review and you're thinking about, okay, how do these papers come together? You, you don't really know and you don't know like what caused the authorship to change. So if for nothing else, for that alone, I think it's worthwhile. Like, you know, if your dissertation was something that was studies two and three out of a seven study trajectory and now you want to run, you know, four, five and six, you should probably still do it with the same people if for no other reason to have that nice, clean authorship delineated. You can see that. Yeah. It might be a weaker point, but... I concur. It is a weaker point. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. You can. You brought it up, so yeah. Yeah, but no, I do. I do still collaborate with both people I know from my previous institution and my advisor. So. Yeah. yeah, and so I mean, so this gets to the other question: then why? Why do we collaborate with people either in the department or outside? So I think one of the reasons is to kind of show that we're a good, you know, um, I don't know, worker. I don't know that we can get along with other people. Um, but I mean, wouldn't yeah? Shouldn't the goal ultimately be like to make things better? So like, why do you guys collaborate with other people, whether it's inside or outside of the, the department or university? Because I have a finite amount of time and mental resources, and right. by collaborating, I can do more work than I can do alone, and it's fun. Right. Uh, so like th- th- those two things, like I by collaborating, I can actually do a lot more than I could ever do. Uh, totally by myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, it's just enjoyable. It's actually more enjoyable to work with someone else on a paper than it is to just work on the paper alone or, or the project alone. Yeah, I, I have a hard time coming up with an answer to that because for me, it's always like I'm sitting down with someone I know, like we're hashing out ideas and we're like, we should do this together. Mm-hmm. So it kind of comes from the ground up. I keep pumping the mic. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it does effectively make the workload lighter and you can allocate tasks to the people that are most efficient, right? So I've been on collaborations where I know a little more of the stats, so I write the results and methods and run the stats, right? And somebody else really knows the literature of that area and they go full steam into that. So if you can optimize like that, I think it's it's good. Yeah, that makes sense. So one of the collaborative relationships that I have, I have because I enjoy working with this person, but also because they have access to um, more resources, especially the, the samples that we want to collect from than we, I have here. And so right. it's been a way for me to keep my foot in that area of research. And I wouldn't be able to do that without collaborators. So that's one reason. Um, but the other thing that I think is that I might not be a very good collaborator. You guys all sound very responsible and responsive. But I'm kind of, so I sort of delineate the research projects where I'm the statistician, where the role is very straightforward, and I am a good collaborator there. I write the results, it's efficient, it's fine. But when it's a, an ongoing project where I have conceptual buy-in and, um, and I have to use that part of my brain, <laughs> then I am very slow at responding to collaborative projects. I'm much better at, at doing other tasks on my to-do list. And those are the first thing that get pushed aside. Even more so than like your own research stuff? So with collab, is it just like all research gets pushed to the side because it's uh, you have other things or just specifically the collaborative stuff? I think it's probably that all research okay. gets pushed aside, but it doesn't hurt other people when it's my research. Whereas mm -hmm. when I'm delaying someone submitting a manuscript, then that's... Like, I could see them not being thrilled with me, right? right. <laughs> and I mean, I've managed to maintain some of these relationships, so I guess it's okay. But... Um, but it's it is the thing that will end up getting pushed aside. Yeah, I would agree. Now I'm I'm also very slow with a lot of things like that, and so I know that with some of the collaborators, it's you know I have felt guilty because of going so slow. Whereas if it was like my own project, I don't think I would feel as bad. I mean, obviously I want to get things out, but it's just different when it's yeah affecting other people. And I actually have fewer collaborations now than I did when I was junior. Partially because I'm trying to get better at respecting other people's time. And so I'm trying to actively say, I'd love to work on this because I like working with you, but I will not respond for six yeah. months. I, yeah, I had, I mean, there's probably two or three years ago where I had like this realization that I was just like spread way too thin. And then I had to actively work on like basically not collaborating with people. So like when the project was done, it was like, great, that was fine. Let's not start anything again. I mean, they yeah. can do something, but it, but it was not. So I really had to kind of work hard to decrease the number of collaborations because it was um, just being spread too thin. And there it's really hard though, because it, it at least I, I don't think it was driven by like, oh, you know, I just want to make everybody happy and I want to do that. Like they were genuinely interesting projects. They would have, you know, been um, there, there still are, you know, like exciting to, to work on. But obviously, yeah, we do have this like limited amount of time um, to, to do these things. And so it's really hard to not kind of overextend yourself. But obviously, yeah, having like 20 works in progress is not particularly useful. Having, you know, three or four completed projects is obviously going to be a lot better. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard to not collaborate with people because you know it's going to be interesting. 
So we've kind of, I think, beat around this bush, but like what makes a collaboration problematic or what makes a bad collaborator? Twyla. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not responding for six months yeah. would make a bad collaborator. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I mean, the collaborations that I, when I was going through that process of paring down collaborators, like I was very intentional of like which ones are, are kind of, productive and and I am excited to work on versus which ones do I feel like it's kind of more of a a drag and it's like oh crap I just gotta get to this um and so some of the things I reflected on are kind of like what we talked about like do I enjoy the project but also do I enjoy working with the other person do those the way that we work on things and our kind of expectations are those similar um because if they have very different expectations whether it's speed or whether it's whatever like that's just going to be really challenging And then also different, like, or coming from kind of, um, I don't know if it's always good, but like a similar, maybe background or similar perspective on issues like, um, you know, like open science or best practices or whatnot, that we all kind of come at it from the same view of like, hey, we're going to run a study and, you know, not p-hack and not do these things. And and so having that kind of similarity has been, or maybe values would be a better way of saying it. Um, but having that similarity right. has been really um, something that I really focused a lot on. Yeah, I think being well aligned. I mean, I I think of I I think of collaborations like broadly as like well, think about like what makes a I mean, I guess you could say like a romantic relationship or a friendship like good. But uh, you have similar types of interests, but also like with with the specific um, focus on collaborations. Um, I am a slow and fussy writer, and I am a slow and picky person when it comes to methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that having collaborators that, that sort of share those types, now like the downside of that is like, if I'm slow and picky and the other person is slow and picky, it means like the project moves really slowly, but it also reduces my level of guilt about how right. slow mm-hmm. I'm working. Uh, so I think like a degree of matching can, can be a really good thing uh, in terms of how you work or, or how you sort of, see uh, a project and how, how you see sort of the way you want to do your science. Uh, I think those things matter for, for formulating a good collaboration. Uh, but I also think, I mean, Twilight brings up a, a point that I thought a lot about as um, an individual who is at a, a, an institution that has some research. Um, uh, we, we have like a number of research resources but I have collaborators who have a lot more uh, research resources. And so thinking about being able to sort of draw on those is one thing that's, that's really nice and I think allows us to like kind of punch above our weight a little bit. So leeching off of other people. Yes, you're yes. I, yeah. I, I am happy to be a parasite. Yeah. Yes. No, I have a, a similar, so um, one of the um, projects that we're, we haven't started yet, but that we're thinking about doing is going to be in, uh, actually in a, a medical school, and there's just, we don't have access to yeah. that here, and so that requires a collaboration. And, and that, yeah, like you said, that that's just something that I couldn't do in my current position, but it allows us to, like, like, like the idea of punching above your weight, like that, that makes sense. Yeah, when I think about collaborations that were not as rewarding, it was either, uh, it was, yeah, a value misalignment, so um, some choices being made that I didn't necessarily agree with in terms of methodology or statistics. That's right. uh, one of the things that's come up in the past. Um, or the other thing that's come up is not clearly delineating the roles ahead of time. So 
I'm thinking in particular about authorship. So I've had some conflicts, and most of these conflicts have actually been with either current or former graduate students no. uh, who have disagreements about order of authorship. And that has been hard for me to disentangle. Wow. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, do you, do you guys talk about authorship order? Like when you start a project with somebody, do you just like jump right into like, hey, here's what I think the authorship order would probably be? Do you wait to see kind of how it shakes out and who ends up doing kind of the, the bulk of the intellectual work? Like, yeah, how do you guys do that? Yeah, I, I mean, all of the collaborations that I've had either with graduate students or with, with other peers, um, the model has kind of been, well, we'll do the project and we'll kind of see how the work shakes out. And then we'll come to a mutually agreeable arrangement about what we think authorship looks like. And so far, that's, that's worked out. I haven't run into any conflicts there. Um, but now I'm kind of wondering if there's a, a gender dynamic going on. Mm -hmm. Like, my grad students will, are like, maybe they're more willing to like defer to like what type. So, like, I came from a school where like your advisor basically like tells you kind of like where you are in the authorship, like what type of reward you reap for your work. Yeah. Um, and that was just like, that was the model. Um, and, and so, you know, when I think of, uh, the work that I've done with my grad students, like I, I try to actively like put them first, mm -hmm. uh, and highlight them as, as authors. Um, but thinking about like conflicts of, I, I haven't had conflicts of authorship, but now I'm really wondering, and, and Twyla, maybe you want to speak to this, like, do you think that this has like a gendered component to it? It's hard for me to say. Um, I've certainly wondered if it has a gender component. I think that students feel comfortable challenging my suggestions for authorship order, and I'm sort of torn about whether that's because they don't see my authority or that's because I've created a collaborative environment where people want to you know, say, well, I think it actually should be like this. And so I don't, I can't decide really what the, what the cause is. Part of it might come from just their misunderstanding of, or not knowing what, you know, what is, how, what determines authorship order. Um, because a lot of times the, the assumption is like, oh, well, I did a lot of work on the project. You know, like I helped collect a lot of the data and I, you know, I don't know, made the Qualtrics survey. That's cute. And, yeah, exactly. And, and so therefore, because I did all of that and, you know, you advisor, you just told me to do those things, but I had to, to actually do all of them. So therefore, you know, I did more work. I should be first author. Um, and, and that's not how we view it. Um, you know, we would view it like, well, no, we came up with the idea. We kind of double-checked everything along the way. And then, I don't know, when it comes time to write the paper, we were probably doing the bulk of the writing. And so that would be the, what, what really constitutes the, the kind of authorship order. Um, but so I'm wondering, and, and what this is getting to is like, well, maybe we should be more intentional about, you know, what does, um, how do we view authorship order? Um, I remember in the PhD program, um, my advisor actually had us read a paper, which I'm blanking on what the paper was, but it was um, a paper talking about authorship order, mm -hmm. and, and um, mostly it was focusing on um, how it's typically viewed by, by most researchers of who would get the kind of first author and so on, but it did talk a little bit about um, you know, how to deal with um, issues that might come up. It was a big advocate of 
um, determining it early. So just yeah. like a project starts and you just tell people like, hey, you're going to be the primary or I'm going to be the primary. And then it just like sets the expectations. That, yeah. But what do you do in that case? So, I mean, if you, if you say like, hey, you're going to be primary, that mm-hmm. means you're going to take the lead on writing this up. Yeah. And then if the person doesn't, yeah. they're like... Let's say they don't respond to an email for six months, yeah. and you say like three months in, like, okay, well, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna write this up. Yeah. Then. then it means that like the, the order of authorship should should change. Yeah. Then. I think that yeah. was the the um, uh, argument was that if if it becomes clear that somebody isn't kind of holding their um, holding up their part right. of the bargain, yeah, yeah, that then you would send another email that says, okay, unless you start on this, we are going to change off the authorship order to you know. Smith, Jones, and whatever, mm-hmm. and then you would start working on it. So you'd make it known that now authorship order is changing. You wouldn't just kind of, you know, push ahead and, and do the work on your own. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of declaring early, but it does kind of get into that situation yeah. where, like, what if things change? And um, I've started having those conversations more and more when I start working on collaborations mm-hmm. early on. Uh, and so far, every time we've done that, it's kind of been like a, a middle ground, like we'll say, okay, this makes sense, right? This seems like the best allocation for now, but we leave open the possibility that it will change. Uh, and that just happened just recently. I don't know if it was me getting confused about authorship or, or whatever, but uh, my collaborators and I decided to move authorship around. Um, so I think I think you can do it early and still give room for situation changes and stuff like that. Um, another point, I don't know if we want to get into this, but I'll make it quickly. I know people have been talking about moving away from author order and doing something like an author list with contributions. Um, I don't know what that would look like because, you know, the system is set up to, to go by author order. So, uh, but it could be interesting. I think it could solve some of this. Yeah. I saw there's an example of that where somebody, um, uh, it was their, like a screenshot of their CV and underneath each, um, uh, citation, they listed what their kind of role was. So they right. were, you know, second author and then here's what they did. And they also indicated the, um, approximate, um, amount of like that they contributed to the, the overall project of like, you know, 80% mine or 60% mine or whatever. Yeah. You know, that gets hard. I mean, I could see a lot of issues with that. Like, do all people agree that they, you know, did the certain amount? Like my guess is, if you asked everybody to identify a percentage, that's going to add up to more than a hundred percent, and that's what the research would suggest is going to happen. Um, so, it, you know, it's not a perfect idea, but I think it does make sense that, um, you know, being second author can mean just completely different things. Mm-hmm. There have been times where I was second author and I probably did like forty-nine percent of the work. There are other times where I was second author and I did like twenty-five percent of the work. Yeah, and I know, I mean, we can only speak for our field, but I know different fields have different practices yeah. as well. So, like, in some fields, if you're a last author, yeah. that, that signifies that, like, you are the, you're the PI and you did a lot of this work. Whereas, I think in psychology, we kind of flip that around. But yeah. It'll be interesting, too, with a lot of the um, more collaborative projects where there are, like, just many, many, you know, there are literally, like, 50, yeah. 60 authors. Right. What happens when you're the third author there? Um, so that, that'll be like, that's where the contribution, I think, you know, understanding what the contribution is, is useful. Haven't they been doing like alphabetical lists for a lot of those preprints, like the, the P values papers? I might, I might be mistaking something. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they do have, like, they'll have the first few that are, you know, those were the primary people involved. And then after that, for the later 60 people, they just do that alphabetical order, I think. Yeah. So 
I have tried, well, I'm thinking specifically of student collaborations. I've tried having the authorship conversation ahead of time, okay. and it's never actually ended up being the authorship order at the end of the project. And so I've stopped doing it entirely because it never actually works out that way. Yeah. And I think part of the reason is that I have this conversation with them when they're in their first semester of graduate school, and they're here for two years, and we never get to the manuscript until the third year, so they're somewhere else. Um, they may have decided not to go on to an academic career at all, and so then they're not even interested in being part of it. At, at the same right. time, I've taken on another student, and I'd like them to be at some kind of authorship role, if possible. And so in that two-year time frame, there are just so many shifting um, pieces, especially career goals and whether or not they even want to be part of this project two years, three years right. from then, that instead I have a generic conversation. I try to. I don't know if I'm systematic. I try to have a generic conversation where I just talk about what authorship is. <laughs> and it's not just organizing the lab. It's not just data collection. It has to be an intellectual contribution to the project and talk about different ways what that might look like and leave it at that. And so I sort of invite them, this could be a paper that you will be an author on in the future, but we can't decide that until that time comes. And I think that has helped. Time will tell because I just started doing this in the past couple of years, but I think that has helped clarify some of the things. The other thing is that I have used as a guide in the past when there have been conflicts. I don't use this going forward, but when there are conflicts, I pull out this point system that a faculty member at my graduate institution oh. used that basically assigns point values to different kinds of contributions. And so if there's a conflict, then I pull it out and I add up the points and I say, okay, you person X have 100 points, you person Y have 60 points, so I think person X should be first author or second, whatever it is, and you tell me why we should flip that. Uh. And so that has also helped to some degree. So does that like so when you talk about some of the instances where people have um, I don't where where roles change like you said somebody is no longer here and they they're moving on to their own thing and then you're thinking about switching the uh, um, the authorship order is that kind of then how do you address that or how do you yeah how do you bring that up to them of like hey you're no longer going to be first author you're going to be second how do you even so it's, it's, it depends on the situation. So if they're out working in the world, then um, I send an email where I say, so we're moving forward with this. Uh, you're still gonna be an author, but I'm guessing you don't really have time or want to really invest in it. You'll be an author because, if it's true, because of your intellectual contribution to the design of the study. And so um, I want you to know we're putting you on it, but you're not gonna be, you're gonna be at the bottom of however long the list might be. Um, so that's usually how it goes if, if it's, you know, three years later. If it's one of the conflict things, that's the only time I bring out the points is when I contact someone and then I, and I say something like, look, you've moved on, this person is here now, they're really motivated to get a publication, I'd like them to take the lead. And then um, if that person... Uh, has mixed feelings and then we talk about that and so I had a situation where that happened where that person agreed but then they changed their mind but they changed their mind after the other person had written like half the paper oh, and so and so then they were like well it was my 
my thesis? And I'm like, yeah, but you agreed. So then I pulled out the point system and figured it out that way. I mean, one thing that this makes me think of then is there seems to be sort of like two different ways of thinking, or sort of, sort of two different discussions. Like one is how do we negotiate uh, questions about authorship with our subordinates, with our with our grad students, uh, with our with our trainees? I don't know. What we're Sorry, yeah, not to get like hierarchical, but I guess I'm, I'm going to. Um, and then how do we think about authorship with our peers? And, and with our peers, I think it's to some extent maybe like a little bit simpler. We have discussions early on about who's going to take the lead that's more fungible. Uh, but I guess with like grad students, I think of it, I guess I do think of it in like a more hierarchical type mm-hmm. of way. You say, okay, this person is going to take lead, and if they like fall down on that, then, like, as the advisor, I feel empowered to say, like, okay, like, we're going to move, or, like, I'm going to write this up, or, like, person B is going to write this mm-hmm. up, and as the advisor, like, I have the ultimate say about sort of where, who gets who gets authorship, but I think that, that's, like, right. a, that is a function of my training, um, and maybe that's, like, a bit heavy-handed, but it's also, like, a way of very easily resolving disagreements, like, I understand that you feel, like, I understand your feelings around this, but let me tell you that, like, your feelings are maybe, like, overvaluing your contribution. And, and this, like, also goes, like, we talked about, like, the idea of, like, changing the way we think about authorship, like, doing it alphabetically or having people uh, list their level of contributions. And, and I wanted to comment on that because I, I have sort of two problems with that. One is that if we, like, order alphabetically, um, in psychology, at least, like, the norm is that the, the order indicates uh, it is, is actually like, meaningful. And so you can say, like, they're ordered alphabetically, but we know that people reason heuristically. And so they still won't read it that way. And, right. like, what people are doing, like, if you think about, like, applying for jobs or even grants, what they're doing is just, like, looking at, like, how many first authors do you have? Uh, and so the, like, oh, we can fix all this by alphabetically ordering, I don't think is actually, like, the panacea that we might hope that it is. The other one about listing, well, okay, what we can do is like, okay, say here's the list of, of authors, and and then everyone sort of lists about what they, they do. That one I'm maybe a little bit more sympathetic to, especially if you are really concrete about what you did, but if you're going to like percentages of like what this is, I would bet you anything that you want to bet that like the men who contribute to that are gonna overestimate their contributions. Uh, and so I, I think then like we get to like a, a really gendered problem where like men are going to overestimate how much they kicked into the paper or like, either either sort of accidentally overestimate or just be more willing to like inflate their contributions. It's like there I'm, I'm really resistant yeah. to that idea of like saying what you contributed unless like we were talking about specifics about like, I analyzed the data for study two. I wrote pages one through four. Um, which then, like, as a, if I'm reading that in someone's CV, like, maybe that's informative. But again, like, I go back to the heuristic thing that when we are reviewing either uh, people reviewing our stuff for grants or people reviewing our stuff for jobs, are they really going to, like, go through and read, like, what your contributions are for, like, 18 different things? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not super, I'm not super optimistic on that. Yeah, it requires motivation that most people won't have yeah. to scour through. Um, I like the idea, aside from yeah. that issue, I like the idea of listing your contributions. I I think that that's fair and transparent, but I don't, but it's not going to 
fix all the problems. Yeah. yeah, the thing that I saw was in reference to like promotion and tenure decisions. So it wouldn't be something oh. that, you know, on every single CV and every single situation that you would do, but for promotion and tenure that you want to go a little bit beyond just the lines on the CV because then maybe it wouldn't be. I still think that you're going to have people who are going to be more willing to overestimate or overrepresent their mm-hmm. contributions to projects. I mean, all of us in this room can think of people who would be more likely to say like, yeah, this product wouldn't exist if I wasn't an author on this. Now, like they're a fourth author on this product, but like they'd say, oh, but I did this and like it would not exist without me. Uh, and so I, I, again, worry about people differences in people being willing to like overrepresent their work. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I totally agree. I would add one thing. It doesn't have to be intentional because a lot of times yeah. you don't know what other people have done. You only know what you have done. Right. And so it's not that you're necessary. Some people certainly would overestimate intentionally. Others though, it's just, I don't know how much time and effort and whatnot other people have put into this. Like I just see, oh, they wrote a page. That page might have, you know, been, you know, three work weeks worth of effort because of, you know, all sorts of different things. Oh yeah, I, I agree. I'm not a, I'm not arguing that intentionality is necessary for people to overscribe mm-hmm. their or to, to believe that they contributed more than they did. Yeah. Um, but it's either way, intentional yeah. or no, it would be a problem. Yeah, and and I don't know. Even just boiling it down to a percentage is challenging. Four hundred percent. Yeah, I don't even know how to do that. At the same time, it does come up during tenure decision mm-hmm. meetings, and so I don't know if, if some information is better than none. Then maybe it's worth discussing in some way. Um, I mean, it's a common conversation for those statisticians in our department. It's a common conversation at tenure and promotion meetings about whether they contributed ideas or they just crunched the numbers. Um, deal with it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not easy to solve. Yeah. Uh, I just, I cannot get over like my worry about gender in this, that like mm-hmm. men are going to be way more willing to toot their own horns. Mm-hmm. And so like this, if we implemented a procedure where you're writing down what your contributions are, men are going to not in, not necessarily intentionally take advantage of it, but they will, right. they will disproportionately benefit from such a program. What about getting your collaborators to make a declaration? So and so did an excellent work. That that I'd be okay with, uh, or uh, rather, I'd be more okay with with that. Uh, I still I still think that you might have like gendered considerations, yeah. but but I think that if we're having like other ratings, or you take like the average of the other ratings, like maybe then you get to. But again, like that's so much work. No one's going to do that work. No, no one's going to do that. It starts to sound more and more like group projects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but even, I mean, like, going back to the idea of men um, um, kind of identifying that they're doing more work than others, um, but wouldn't they do that with authorship order also, though? Wouldn't there be the gender bias there? So, and I would say that would be more influential. Like, moving from first to second author is a big deal, whereas you know, a slight overestimation of how much you contributed might be less impactful. I mean, I think with the authorship there, you're having, so, I mean, there are going to be sort of edge cases where it's unclear, like, mm-hmm. who's first, second, or third, or, like, who's first versus second, who's second versus third. Um, and and so there'll be cases where that type of bias can, can certainly slip in. But oftentimes, like, it's clear who the first author is on a project, like, who has done the majority of the writing work, and... and 
I guess for the record, that's how I think about first authorship, who's done the majority of the writing conceptual work uh, for, for a project. Um, whereas if you are asking people to estimate things like percentages, I mean, we, we know from, from your work that like, people are not yeah. great at that. And so because people are already not great at that type of estimation, it allows for a slightly more pernicious bias to, to slip in on a more regular basis. So definitely there's going to be a lot of like authorship issues that we've been talking about, but um, you guys have kind of hinted at other types of issues that you've had with collaboration. So like Twilight, I think you said something about like, you know, people um, making compromises on like the design or, or like, you know, analyses that you might run. How have you dealt with, well, what issues have you had and how have you dealt with those? Like, I, I think I've been fairly fortunate in, in my collaborations. I haven't had many um, um, kind of issues, so I don't know. I just want to get your opinion on how have you guys dealt with that. I've had a few issues where someone will bring me in later into the project. So either the data's already been collected or at least it's already been designed. Um, and so the idea is that at least initially, the idea is that I'll just, I'll be the statistician. Um, and then it turns out that they don't actually have clear research questions or hypotheses. And so being the statistician in that case also means making some conceptual choices and, right. and um, scientific choices about what to test, um, and especially if they run a study where they have a whole lot of variables. Yeah. <laughs> would like you to find something. Yeah, find yeah. Right, and so those have been, I don't know if I've handled them all that well, honestly. Sometimes I push back, I, I mean, I always push back to some degree. And try to say, well, you know, I wasn't involved in designing the study, so what did you have in mind? Um, but there have been a, at least a couple occasions where even that didn't work. And at some point, I had to just make the best judgment I could um, and run whatever analyses I thought were appropriate given their design. Um, and so I've always felt squirrely about those projects. I've always felt a little weird when they go up for review. I, and it's still something that I occasionally deal with. I think I've gotten better at handling it, but I don't know if I can articulate. I think I can anticipate it better now. Yeah. And so then I can at least try to make the distinction between content and stats earlier in the conversation. Yeah, I felt squirrely about it too when I've had issues. Um, I guess I, I have to be a little careful about this because one of them happened pretty recently. But uh, sorry about that. We'll, we'll stop collaborating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was similar. I came in late. Uh, I was brought on in part for conceptual stuff and also statistics stuff. Um, and ultimately, I walked away from the paper um, in part because. Like you, I started out pushing back a little bit and saying, like, this is what we need to do. This is what I think is best. Uh, this is what would, I think, fully test your hypotheses. Uh, based on how you've conceptually framed this, I think you need to bring in a little bit more work to really flesh out this framework. Um, and ultimately, it just, it, 
it was just a stalemate, right? There's there's no no way to find a middle ground. Uh, and I said, all right, I, I'm just going to have to step away. Um, and that ended pretty well overall. Um, so it was it was very mutual. And when I was putting forth arguments for what I wanted to do, I was making sure, you know, I granted them their perspective, but then said, okay, here's how I think we can improve on it. Um, but it, it just, we were spinning our wheels after a while. Um, so that, I think, more than anything, not the disagreement, but just the fact that, like, we were at that stalemate is what led me to move away from it. This is kind of a related thing. Um, so earlier we were talking about um, uh, how, you know, what makes for a kind of an enjoyable collaboration is people have, like, you know, similar goals and maybe values about how we kind of deal with uh, science and research and so on. Um, but is there like an argument to be made that we should be intentionally working with people who have different values than us? Maybe not necessarily on like, you know, how science is done, but where we should be working with uh, collaborators, whether it's um, different, um, they come from like a different theoretical perspective or just, you know, you know, we're more liberal, they're more conservative, or they're, you know, religious versus non-religious or whatever. Um, would those types of collaborations be useful for the types of things that we study? I mean, other areas that doesn't matter, but but in, in the types of areas that we study, would there be would that, there be value in that? Or would that just create problems? Yes. <laughs> it would do both. So. Uh, no, no, I, I'm, uh, I am a strong advocate for uh, what, what do we call them? Uh, not antagonistic. Adversarial. Uh, adversarial. Yeah. Uh, adversarial collaboration. So uh, in moral psychology, because like, uh, so, everything comes back to moral psychology for me, because that's what I do, um, there are at least like two sort of different camps that have been existing for the last, I don't know, 10, 20 uh, years uh, about like how we make moral judgments. One is uh, sort of saying like, it's sort of bias heavy, the other saying it's sort of more information heavy. Um, and I think like the, that would be a case where collaborations would be, a re, uh, adversarial collaborations would be a really powerful way of advancing the field to say, okay, we have two people with different uh, ideas about like how we think people arrive at these types of judgments. Uh, they, we, we work together, we agreed on uh, a methodology that would test these things. I think it'd be even better than like if you do like a, um, uh, if you can have like the sort of method approved by the journal in advance, so, like okay, this is the method, this is what we're testing, yeah. uh, and then say like this will help us, uh, and then the, the journal sort of says like we'll, we'll uh, you get peer reviewed prior to, uh, we'll publish this regardless of what the findings are. I think that's a really powerful way. Those types of uh, adversarial, pre-registered types of collaborations can be good ways of moving a field forward. Um, there are a couple people in, in my field, like I'm thinking of like one in, in particular, um, and like I totally disagree with this with this person on a number of things, but I think um, she does absolutely like wonderful work. Uh, this is with uh, some work on, on free will. This is uh, Corey Clark. She has a she has a podcast, Philippod. Uh, I might be saying that slightly wrong, but I think she's like, a really wonderful thinker. Um, she does really cool work. I, I disagree with her on a couple of things, but I think like that would be a case where it'd be really fun to work on a collaboration. Uh, Corey, if you ever listen to this, like we should work together. Uh, <laughs> but it'd be really fun to do that collaboration because I, I think that'd be an opportunity where we'd say, okay, we have different ideas about how beliefs about free will affect our, our moral behaviors and our moral judgments. And But um, I think that's a case where 
working together would be able to like advance a question that's currently at a stalemate. Yeah, I can see that. that. I mean, so I think that's that's similar to what I was thinking about, but I would say where you probably feel like you and Corey are, you know, completely different and you're bringing these brand new, different perspectives, whatnot. We're great. Realistically, I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know her, but I'm guessing that you guys, I mean, okay, you're seeing, you're both interested in moral psychology. You're both seeing the value of focusing on these moral issues. You're both looking at how moral issues or um, beliefs about free will may influence things later on. So you probably have very similar views going into these particular projects, and you're you're really arguing about a lot of the very small, like nuanced issues. Oh no! Like, well, she, which, she would like totally disagree. Like she would say, like, "Hey, free will effect, uh, free will beliefs affect your moral judgments and moral behavior." I'd say, "No, they don't." Well, uh, but, but again, that's, that I think that's a very small area of all of you know. It's an ivory tower. That's an ivory tower. Uh, and, but what I was thinking, I mean, like, like, okay, what about somebody who is just, I mean, hardcore, you know, um, conservative, and I mean, they're coming at this from a completely different, not completely different, I mean, they have a very similar perspective, but, but, but some of their core values are different than what yours might be. So are you saying, like, okay, so imagine, like, I'm a climate scientist. Like, would I want to go and collaborate with a climate Denied. science denier? Yeah. No, that yeah. seems... That seems unfruitful because that person is an idiot. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's a maybe problematic way of framing it because if we're being scientific, some of those things like political ideology shouldn't necessarily flavor what we're doing. But they do. I mean, I, they, I they, 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 they do. I'm just my, saying. Yeah. Like, but I think that's my point is that we don't see the instances where our political ideology might influence the questions that we address, how we address those questions, and so on. Right. I, I mean, I think that's why people like Lee Jussum and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, the Heterodox Academy, that's why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, we shouldn't base it solely on, oh, this person is on the opposite end of the spectrum of me, oh, yeah. so I should collaborate yeah. with them. Right. Right, because that doesn't seem like justification enough. Yeah. No, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. So I, I was coming at it with the mindset of assuming that they view science in the same way that we do, that they view evidence in the same way that we do, but they're coming at it from a different perspective. And, and yeah, political ideology was the, the kind of example that I used. And I think it's important that, so in, in the case where you think that you disagree with someone, that the arguments on the other side are still good faith arguments. Mm-hmm. Right. There, I think collaboration can be fruitful uh, with people that you disagree with and, like, and you disagree with in good faith. I'm not sure, like, so, I mean, we're, we're talking about, sort of, like, uh, the, the, the political divide. Like, I'm not entirely sure that, like, some of those disagreements are, like, always good faith disagreements. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, maybe this is for a future pod, but, like, I'm, I'm a little critical of, like, the Heterodox Academy and, like, whether or not those are often good faith disagreements. But maybe that's a future pod. I have maybe an easier example. So, I do research on sexual assault by nature women tend to be. So if we think about RAs, for example, and graduate students, I have had almost entirely women. And I do think that I'm missing a perspective by not having male, just even in lab meetings, not having male RAs and um, graduate students attending the lab meetings. Um, And so, and I think I think most people would probably agree with me that I am missing a perspective. So I think that's an easier yeah. example of where it would benefit the lab 
if we had a better gender balance. Right. But I can also imagine that it might make some of the lab meetings a little more contentious because there might be kind of differing views that you would have, right? Yeah. We're typically going to be getting along with people who have similar views. We're going to be getting along with them a little bit better versus people have different perspectives. Yeah. And I don't... I mean, I went to law school, so I'm okay with contentious. Yeah, like, no, yeah, I, you, I do, yeah you deal well Like, with I that. want yeah. the lab to argue, so I'm okay. less worried about that. I yeah. would be worried about certain students maybe feeling uncomfortable. Oh, right, yeah. Um, like, if a student has maybe a history or whatever the situation might be, feeling judged or yeah. um, um, suffocated in the conversation, then that would worry me. Yeah. But I think, the, I think contentious is good. Mm-hmm. I think too often... I feel like too often in my lab meetings, all the students agree with me, and I know I'm saying something that is not mm-hmm. a fact mm-hmm. and could be argued. So um, I look for ways to create a little bit more disagreement. Yeah, no, and then I think that gets to the idea of like, yeah, having disagreement could be. There are times where it can be useful to get that separate perspective, but also going back, right? I still agree with you. Um, that you know, you, you still have to have make sure that's in good faith and disagreement, and that there's still that that goal of furthering the, the research. Yeah, yeah. All right. Do we have anything else to cover? All right. Well, thank you for um, listening to Marginally Significant, and we will talk with you next time. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to Marginally Significant. We'd love to hear if you have comments, questions, or any feedback about today's episode. You can message us on Twitter at MarginallySig. Our email address is MarginallySig at gmail.com. And there's a contact form on our website, which is MarginallySig.com. However you contact us, we'll be sure to reply. Uh, If you're interested in supporting the show, we'd also love getting reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And finally, uh, you can post about the show on Twitter, Facebook, or any other social media platform that you use. However you support the show, we really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.